Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Parliamentary and presidential elections in Indonesia were April 17th. Official results were just announced to protests from the supporters of the losing presidential candidate, former General Prabowo Subianto. Six people were killed. Prabowo refuses to accept what appears to be decisive results. The victory by the incumbent winner Jokowi is seen by many observers as a rejection of strongman rule, but Jokowi's victory also advances a troubling trend of religious majoritarianism in the world's largest Muslim democracy. With me is Jeffrey Winters, chair of the Political Science Department at Northwestern University. Good to see you, Jeffrey. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jerome. What was really at stake here in this election for Indonesia? Well, uh, there was a lot at stake. Um, The first thing probably is uh, there's been a tremendous momentum of the uh, politicization of religion in the country over the last uh, several years. It's been happening for a long time, but it really, really gained uh, momentum. And Connected to that uh, politicized religion was a rising wave of intolerance in Indonesia. Um, and it had lots of different forms, um, it, but, but basically intolerance of other religions, in, intolerance of what were considered to be immoral social groups and practices, um, constraints on women. And the fact that uh, Joko Widodo one is seen as a setback for that movement, which has had um, a, a tremendous amount of momentum. Uh, the people who are supporting Proboa, it's an unusual alliance, it sounds like, of religious people and military people. Yeah, it's a it's a very, very strange alliance, actually, in part because um, it's no big secret in Indonesia that Proboa himself is not um, – an extremely religious person. Um, he has pretended and people have been coaching him on, you know, phrases in Arabic, you know, and what to say in front of crowds um, to try to present himself as pious. Um, but everyone who knows his long career, he's, he's if anything, much closer to an atheist uh, than, uh, than, than anything else. And yet, the only social base he was really able to draw on was the Islamic base. And so the two sides um, were wary of each other, um, but they were the only two elements that could come together to win. And in fact, it provoked some people to say, Wow, if they do win, who's going to knock the other over first? Um, because uh, I've I've actually known Prabowo for a very long time. I've had many conversations with him, and he has said over and over um, that uh, the number one thing that he wants to do for the country is make sure that uh, conservative Islamic forces never take over. 
All right. That's really a wild political alliance then. Yeah. But they're the ones out in the street roughing people. We're getting this getting rough right now. They're not accepting election results. Right. So um, if it's, it's important to understand that the backers of Prabowo um, represent a broad spectrum of people. Um, and, and it includes people from, as you said, from the armed forces and former officers and soldiers and so on, because Prabowo was himself um, a former general. He's a retired general. Um, uh, but the Islamic movement that is supporting him um, ranges from people who are quite mild and, you know, not very uh, energized by religion as politics, all the way out to people who are ready to fight. Um, and the elements that have shown up in the streets in the last 24 to 48 hours, and that's because the final count of the election has now been um, announced. Um, they've shown up to say uh, the election results are fraudulent, um, that there was massive cheating, um, and that this is an injustice. Um, and part of their anger has to do with the fact that they felt that with Prabowo as the person out front, um, they felt that they had enough momentum coming into this election that they could actually win it. We're talking about the elections in Indonesia. The results were just announced. Uh, there was protests. Six people were killed in the protests. And uh, Prabowo Subianto, the former general, uh, says he won't accept the protests. I wanted to ask about what this really means for Indonesian democracy as it's been pushing on since the end of Suharto 20 years ago. Uh, is this uh, – most people are saying, well, the strongman didn't get elected. This is great. It's one place in the planet that, you know, that didn't elect a strongman leader. Uh, that, that's terrific. Yeah, there's a, there's a plus and a minus to this moment, I suppose. Um, the, you know, let's start with the plus, which is that um, since the fall of Suharto in 1998 and the very first elections in 1999 – um, Indonesia has now um, gone through um, multiple elections which have all occurred on time. Um, they've all been competitive. Um, they've had results from time to time that were surprising, meaning that they weren't all set up in advance. Uh, lots of candidates, open contestation, uh, and a minimum of violence. And one of the most important things is that the people who lose um, have always lost, perhaps grumblingly, but gracefully in the end. Um, and even incumbents like Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, who had been in power for two terms as president, um, and that was the term limit, he did not run and he stepped out. So many, many things have happened um, to say that Indonesia was consolidating its democracy. That's all on the good side. And Indonesia has once again, this round, had an election on time. Um, and um, for the most part, clearly they're going to get through it. Um, I don't think this is a breakdown of the state moment. But this time it's been marred by um, – clear people who have clearly lost who are unwilling to step aside and that's not a good sign for the turn that has happened in Indonesia's politics uh, back to the upside like 80% of the people vote in Indonesia it it happens all in the same day it's kind of a miracle of of democracy 
Right. I mean, it is it is an incredible um, feat that this country pulls off. I mean, as everyone knows, India, which is a much larger country, admittedly, by population, um, uh, they rotate the the vote over a period of at least a month. Um, Indonesia, across 17,000 islands, you know, not even a contiguous uh, landmass, they do the vote all in one day, and they do the counting, at least the local counting, all in one day. Um, This is 819,000 polling stations. Wow. Each one of those has at least five officials, so we're talking about four million people taking part in officiating this. Um, And by the way, there were reports that 200 of those people died from fatigue, Um, uh, although actuarially, I don't know how many people out of 4 million would have died anyway. You know, I don't know what the numbers are. Um, But they said, you know, it was just from the sheer exhaustion of doing this election and how, how hard it was. But Anyway, the logistically across all these islands, the transporting of ballots. Uh, and by the way, just so uh, an American voter has an idea of what casting a ballot in an election like this looks like, every voter had five ballot sheets um, in their envelope. Yeah. Uh, the ballots had not only pictures of all the candidates, but the colors and the flags of all the candidates' parties. And you had to manage these five Enormous pages that looked like they were about the size of a regular newspaper page. And then you had to punch holes in those um, ballots physically to cast your votes. Um, Really complicated for a country where the education system is not that great. Um, So let's just say logistically it is an astonishing feat. Some things will go wrong. Not all of this is going to go perfectly smoothly. Um, But the question that Prabowo and his party – and the people who back him faces, do the anomalies and things that happened across the archipelago, um, do those amount to massive cheating? And that's what he's claiming. He's saying massive, massive cheating, the loss of tens of millions of votes uh, um, switched to the other side. Uh, He claims that's what happened. I wanted to ask a question about uh, the U.S. and Donald Trump and Prabowo because Prabowo almost seems like a Trump-like candidate, a uh, guy you know who wants power, doesn't really care much about religion, allied with religious people, and um, they seem like almost uh, kind of identical in that way. And then you've got um, Mr. Trump's business interests in Indonesia. They are substantial. Yes, I'd say there's a lot of parallels. Maybe let me start with one of the biggest differences, which is that um, Prabowo is um, absolutely a brilliant figure. He's incredibly smart. I don't think I could really say that with any confidence about um, President Trump. Um, This is a guy who um, reads history, has a library, is a thinker, um, but he's also a former commander of elite attack forces – he was one of the commanders in East Timor. Um, he uh, is someone who, um, during the fall of Suharto, uh, rounded up and tortured democracy activists. Um, so you know, this is a guy who um, um, is 
in many ways more complicated, shall we say, than um, than than Donald Trump. Um, but nevertheless, their orientation is um, very much the same. They, uh, I don't know if if uh, Donald Trump uh, knows very much about um, Prabowo, but Prabowo knows a lot about Donald Trump and is is a big admirer. Um, and the Trump family is doing business in Indonesia. They have properties. They are building hotels and um, um, tourist uh, destinations, and all during uh, President Trump's uh, uh, presidency, um, members of the Trump family have been making regular trips to Indonesia to be to build these uh, these hotels. All right. Very interesting. I'm talking with Jeffrey Winters, chair of the political science department at Northwestern University. We're talking about the election results from Indonesia, which were just announced. And we haven't gotten all this way and haven't talked about the winner really yet and what his next term is like. Uh, Jokowi, uh, he has a interesting vice presidential candidate that solided up his Islamic credentials. Uh, what has happened to him and his administration? Yeah. By the way, we've gone along and we haven't actually said what the numbers were. So uh, Jokowi uh, won by 55.5% of the vote and Prabowo got 44.5, you know. So we're talking about roughly a 10% difference. Um, so it's a – in many countries, that's just – that's a landslide. Yep. Um, it's not close at all. So the fact that Prabowo is uh, challenging this is uh, is is a bit rich. Um, now, uh, this victory for – you know, Jokowi, as he's known, Joko Widodo, um, uh, what does it mean? And especially the fact that he had um, at the very last minute, he chose a conservative cleric um, to be his vice president. Um, and the backstory on this is that um, during this campaign, Jokowi has been called everything from atheist to Chinese which is a bad word in in Indonesia, um, uh, to a communist. Um, so every sort of – every nasty kind of um, epithet has been hurled at him by the other side through social media and various kinds of fake news and so on. Um, and he needed to shore up his Islamic credentials. Um, so what he did was he chose this cleric who is one of the leading clerics in the country who put Jokowi's best friend in jail um, for blasphemy. Um, so that, that guy had taken over the governorship of uh, Jakarta. Um, his name is Ahok. And Ahok was running to actually refill that role as governor. Um, and because he said something about one Quranic verse um, that the followers of the religion decided to take quite negatively, he got himself into trouble. And the current vice president um, was one of the guys who spoke out and said, Ahok must go to jail um, for this, for blasphemy. And he did go to jail. So, so, so does this make him a rival to the president? Well, <laughs> uh, in the eyes of Jokowi's base, they were dumbstruck that someone who was hostile um, and who was actually leading uh, the move to put Ahok unfairly in their eyes in jail um, just for campaigning – um, 
Yeah, it was a it was a shock. But the the people around Jokowi felt that um, felt that it was important to give an Islamic uh, imprint on the ticket. Um, and by the way, one other reason, and this is you shouldn't be underestimated. This guy's in his seventies; he's about seventy-six, and the view was around Jokowi, a bunch of ambitious people who want to be candidates next round because this is the end for Jokowi, second term. They didn't want a younger vice presidential candidate. They wanted somebody who was old and wasn't going to huh. be viable um, five years from now. All right, but does this mean? Um I've read a couple different different things about the vice president that, um, you know, he's from the biggest Islamic organization in the country. Uh, his social uh, credentials and what he advocates socially would be completely unacceptable here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's people who argue in Indonesia that you could do a lot worse than him. And if you keep the Islam moderate, uh, things are going to be okay and better and that this is a good move. Right. So this man, his name is Amin Maruf. Let's say 20 years ago, he would be seen as a complete radical in terms <laughs> of religion. But Indonesia has moved so much that he now appears moderate. Um, he uh, has led major attacks on Indonesia's LGBTQ community. Um, he is um, very restrictive on women's rights and uh, women's dress and the role of women in society. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's pushed a very conservative religious agenda. Um, and but that is now just mainstream. Um, so there is a whole wing now of Islamic politics in Indonesia that wants to actually create a Sharia Islamic state. Um, and he's not on board necessarily for that. Is he influenced by Saudi Arabia? There's been a lot of Saudi money going in. Um, I actually don't see him as being one of the Saudi wing uh, influenced people. Um, I would have to check actually where he um, studied and so on. Um, but I think not. He's he's they're over in the Prabowo crowd. They're actually over in the Prabowo crowd. That's right. So <laughs> um, the 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 Wahhabis and the um, you know really really serious. People with a very serious religious ideology are over on the other side, which is the anomaly because nobody is more against them than Prabowo himself. I want to ask a quick question about China and uh, Jokowi. He's accepted a lot of investment from China, built a lot of infrastructure. That's one of his big campaign points. Uh, what do you? What does that portend? Um, does that mean? Indonesia is over a barrel to China in the future or uh, – I mean I imagine that's how he gets called Chinese in, in the election campaign and things. Yeah. In fact, one of the big issues that came up um, – I was, I was in the country during the election and attended um, the presidential debates. Uh, and one of the things that came up in the debates was whether Jokowi was selling the country out to the Chinese um, because they were coming in not only with capital, but the way that the Chinese firms were doing this is that they were also bringing in tens of thousands of workers. So China's policy, not that Indonesia has any lack of workers, but the Chinese firms found it much easier just to direct their own 
workers yep. and what to do. But it's it's kind of a worker export uh, strategy on the part of China as well. They're doing this throughout the region and they're doing it in Africa. Um, and they claim it's an ease of doing business uh, aspect. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the claim was how can you let them work on our vital infrastructure, our ports, our rails, our electric grid, all those things. Um, and we're beholden to them and we're in debt to them. Uh, but, but look, Joko Wee's response is um, they build this stuff. Uh, we run it. It, it, it wouldn't matter if we hired people from Britain and they helped build it. Um, it's not as if they get to stay here and have some kind of lease on our ports for 99 years. It's not like that. So he said, whoever is willing to bring in the technology and the uh, engineering and, and so on, uh, we're willing to take it. So, but what Prabowo was playing on is a broader nervousness that Indonesia has about China for two reasons. One, China is certainly the biggest player in their sphere, in the Asian sphere, uh, in the Pacific. And number two, Indonesia has a 3% Chinese minority um, that they like to push around um, and sometimes beat up and kill on a regular basis. Uh, and those folks are more rich than the average Indonesian. And there's always a concern that if they go too far attacking their local Chinese community, China could intervene. Um, Lastly, Jeffrey, I mm -hmm. want to ask if you think the Indonesian election gets enough coverage in the press. Uh, if we mean the U.S. press, the answer is I, I have yet to see it actually appear anywhere. This is um, an enormous country uh, with a lot at stake. Um, and our coverage of, I think, our own president and our own domestic issues has so crowded out um, an awareness of what's going on in very important places around the world that, you, you know, one of the effects of this is that um, it allows an ever smaller number of people in Washington to set policy without any pushback and any knowledge on the part of the population. So whatever part of the world we're talking about, there's a general lesson here, which is it's important to be aware of what's happening so that um, if the Boltons of the world decide they want to go marching into war and conflicts around the world, that the American people have some understanding of what's happening, what the background is. And I, I see it absolutely nowhere in the U.S. media. Jeffrey Winters is chair of the political science department at Northwestern University. We've been talking with him about Indonesia for years. Good to talk with you again. Thank you very much, Drum. Coming up after the break, our connection to the violence in Central America and Mexico. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Aida Hernandez is here from Mexico. She spoke about violence against Central American immigrants in Mexico last night at the Social Justice International Women's Speaker Series hosted at the University of Illinois at Chicago's Social Justice Initiative. Aida is a senior researcher at the Center for Research and Advanced Studies in Social Anthropology in Mexico City. Great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit about our connection to the violence in Central America and Mexico. Uh, I think a lot of people feel disconnected from that here. They know what's going on there, but think it's a, a problem of the drug wars there or something. Uh, how, do you, how do you make that connection to people? Well, uh, thank you for asking me this, because sometimes as a political anthropologist coming to the U.S. to talk about the human rights problems and violence in our country, I'm concerned that I'm contributing to build an image that those are pre-political countries where the institutions do not work to have you as a mirror of a society where everything works. And I'm very concerned, especially because I work with young people and students, to uh, point out the importance to see the linkage. And well, one of the issues that is very important and central is that a lot of the weapons that are being used for human rights violations in Mexico come from the U.S. weapon market. And well, the more well-known case is the undercover operation Fast and Furious in 2009, when the U.S. government sent more than 2,000 weapons to Mexico uh, that were illegally sold to the cartels to follow the weapons later. And they were not able to follow those weapons, and they were used to kill a lot of people, among others, uh, a U.S. official, Jaime Zapata, who was killed in 2011, when one of the weapons of this undercover operation. So I talk as an anthropologist about a masculine culture of war that has its roots in this country. And that implies cultural practice of war as torture, as body mutilations. That um, one of another example that I have been analyzing, it's um, the role of cartels as the Zetas that were formed by Excaibil as elite troops from Guatemala that were trained in the School of the Americas. So the troops from, the guys from Guatemala who were trained by the School of the Americas ended up in Zetas. Exactly. And uh, what is very uh, terrible, and it's like a horror movie, is that this training is now being used uh, in massacre as the Cadreita massacre uh, that was committed the penal research, the penal investigation has shown that the Zetas were involved in this. So the the weapons that come from this country, the practice and, uh, of death that have been learned in military bases here, schools here in the U.S., are now affecting thousands and thousands of people in Mexico, but also immigrants that cross through the country. Tell us a little about your work uh, with you – you focus on uh, immigrants from Central America who are, are preyed on in Mexico. What, what exactly are you doing? I think it, we, we have a kind of perception about this that may not be exactly accurate. Um, what, what, what's your work been? Well, I'm a um, legal anthropologist, political and legal anthropologist, and I'm part of a forensic interdisciplinary team that is, is also a forensic and legal anthropology team. 
uh, that is working with human rights organization, helping with uh, expert witness reports. And I'm specifically now working in this in one case that is the case of the massacre of Cadereyta that took place in 2012, where 49 immigrants were killed and their bodies, mutilated bodies, were found forming a circle uh, in in Nuevo León in this uh, center. And from these uh, 49 bodies, only 16 had been identified. And what we are doing as expert witness are now doing an expert witness report uh, for reparations uh, as part of the legal team that is helping them. So I'm going uh, to this area in Honduras, uh, to La Paz specifically and other villages around where 10 of these immigrants uh, were from. And we're trying to see the impact of this violence in the community of origin. And as a part of the documentation of this expert witness report, we can see how uh, to go through Mexico as immigrants to search for a better life is now a very, very dangerous experience. That's one of the reasons why people are immigrating in big, big groups for safety reasons. What did you find about their circumstances in Honduras when you went back there that forced them to leave? Well, um, uh, something that for me is, is very interesting is how the parents of these massacred young men and women and also other uh, families of disappeared young men and, wo- and women are so clear in their analysis of the relationship that exists between the situation that forced them to leave and the responsibilities of the U.S. So... Uh, one issue that everybody points out is how the coup d'etat that took place in 2009 represent a watershed in the situation of human rights in Honduras. And, um, well, something that had been doc- documented is how from two ta- 2010, after uh, Manuel Zelaya was overthrown, the democratically elected government of Manuel Zelaya was overthrown with the support of the United States. We see a crisis of human rights uh, violations. Just uh, to give you an example, um, the Global Witness Organization is talking about 118 uh, ecological activists that had been killed in this period for the defense of their territory. At the same time that these uh, uh, the two governments that they had after the coup d'etat have given uh, a lot of the communal land to mega projects. It was during this period that in 2016, Berta Cáceres was murdered in March. We also have that 110 peasants uh, were killed defending their land. The LGBT community had also been affected. 2029 activists had been murdered during this period of time. So we have a human rights crisis in Honduras at the same time that we have a process of dispossession of land that is pushing people outside Honduras. So the exodus that we see, the big massive migration that we're seeing now is also a consequence of all these uh, policies that had been backed up by your government. I'm talking with Aida Hernandez. She's here from Mexico and is an anthropologist who's a specialist on violence against Central American immigrants in Mexico, and she's talking about some of her work today. Um, I wanted to ask a question about um, 
the other disappeared in Mexico. And one of the phenomenons that's happened is that a lot of regular people have just gone out and searched for the disappeared in Mexico. And I know there was a case in Sinola uh, Sinola with the mothers of uh, an organization called the Searchers. Uh, What was happening there? Well, um, as well as in Central America are mainly the mothers that ones that are searching for their kids. So uh, there is an alliance also. They have gone together, the Central American mothers with the Mexican mothers, because they are both uh, victims of impunity and violence of these armed men. And in the specific case of the searchers, Las Buscadoras, from the northern state of Sinaloa, uh, it's a very... Uh, amazing experience in which a group of mothers have gone to search with their own hands with picks and shovels to search for their kids. And in the last two years, they have found 110 bodies themselves. They are doing the work that the Mexican state have not been able or not willing to do so. And from these 110 bodies, human beings that they have found, they have been able to identify hundreds of them and turn their bodies to their relatives. Some of them are their own kids. But uh, the group, even those mothers that already have found their kids, are searching for the kids of all their families. And they have assumed the role that they are all their kids. The slogan at the beginning of the creation of this organization was, Te buscaré hasta encontrarte. I will search for you until I found you. And now they pluralize this. Los buscaremos hasta encontrarlos. We will search for you all until we found you. So it's a shame that are the mothers in their pain and in their mourning, the ones that are searching for the di- for the disappear. We're talking about 40,000 young men and women that had disappeared in Mexico in the last two administrations. Well, it speaks volumes to what you were saying at the beginning about the masculine culture of war that is coming down on people and it is coming down on these mothers. That's what it is. And I was talking yesterday because I'm a feminist also. I'm a legal anthropologist, but I'm a feminist that if people ask me who are the perpetrators of this violence, it's a very mixed arena, uh, but some of them are corrupted police forces, corrupted army. Some others are cartels. Some others are both police forces. But what is known for sure is that 99% of the perpetrator are violent men. So we are talking about a masculine violent culture of death that had been globalized. It's not only in Mexico. You can find it all over the place. And if you see this masculine violent culture with weapons, then we have a very terrifying arena. Aida Hernandez is a legal anthropologist and feminist from Mexico. Uh, she is with the Center for Research and Advanced Studies in Social Anthropology in Mexico City, and she's been speaking at the Social Justice International Women's Speaker Series hosted by the University of Illinois at Chicago's Social Justice Initiative. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the situation of violence in Central America and Mexico. Thank, thanks a lot for the invitation. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll rehash what happened on Eurovision. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
And that's the song from Iceland in the Eurovision contest this year. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And we're going to debrief on the Eurovision song contest that took place over the weekend. Last year, listeners Alexandra and Jürgen Reinhold invited me to their Eurovision party. I went. I had a great time. We talked about the results on the show. So we thought we'd do it again this year. I wasn't able to make their party this year, but it's good to see you, Jürgen and Alexandra. Thanks for having us again. Thanks for having us again. Uh, You enjoyed basically the whole presentation this year. Uh, Alexandra, you you had a good time and and enjoyed, thought the Eurovision was a cut above this year. Yes. uh, The songs were all wonderful and entertaining to watch. I think the production overall was really nicely done. We we liked the interval acts between the songs and the voting. We especially enjoyed the voting in itself. It was uh, nice this time, really. Um, Jürgen, did you, when you were doing your scorecards, and you guys get official scorecards and an official feed <laughs> from, from the international feed and everything, um, how, how this, the winning song was kind of a straightforward ballad from the Netherlands. Um, what did you think? Well, it was a surprise for us. Uh, nobody in the room had them anywhere in their, in their top. So we had <laughs> Australia. the way it is. Yes. Exactly. It never. So Australia was a pretty hit for everybody there. Um, Denmark, Sweden. Now, Australia um, had a big production number. That's correct, yeah. So the song was uh, Zero Gravity, and so the three, the singer plus the two, two backups, they were floating on big, big tall poles uh, in the air, and so it was a pretty interesting uh, presentation. Uh, why don't we hear a little bit of the Australian entry and imagine people on tall poles floating in the air with this. Well, it's kind of a dreamy song with a beat. Yes, it was actually a wonderful performance, watching them doing their singing and swaying on those tall poles. It was impressive, singing while being up there. So this is the one people should look up and kind yes. of check out if they were yes. interested in just seeing one splashy song from Eurovision. Check out the Australia entry. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Jürgen, did you have some other favorites? Well, uh, there was one of my favorites was not actually in the finals. They were uh, filtered out in the in the semifinals. Was the Polish song, um, which was a more traditional uh, white singing song, um, and it was an interesting, um, you know, very different uh, culturally. All right, let's let's listen to that because a lot of people seem to like that song. the Polish entry from Eurovision this year. I'm talking with Alexandra and Jürgen Reinhold about uh, their Euro 
fission debrief from their basement party. Now, <laughs> no, you were telling me that there's a couple of uh, interesting Eurovision uh, tidbits and expansions coming up. Um, Jurgen, it's going to Asia? Yes, it looks like a few years back, uh, the Australian broadcaster got a license from the Eurovision, from the EBU, from the Euro- Eurovision Broadcast Union to uh, host a, an Asia event. It's called Eurovision Asia. Looks like... Um, I, I think I would just go straight with Asia Vision. Well, it's Eurovision. It me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, Eurovision Asia sounds... I think it's officially kind of Eurovision Asia Song Contest. A little colonial. Yeah, little probably. Colonial but anyway, it looks like some sometime end of November, uh, early December is a week-long uh, festivity. And uh, the last thing I saw was the 17 countries already um, uh, announced their participation. And with all the K-pop and everything, it'd be really, it could be really could good. Be interesting. Yeah. Alexandra, what about Will Ferrell here? Yeah, uh, if he is, it, there's talk about him doing a movie about or around Eurovision. For and, Netflix. And for Netflix. So that could be a very interesting thing because Eurovision is... Well, sometimes a little bit, you know, not <laughs> it's, always. <laughs> it's campy. It's mockable. It's campy. Yeah, that's right. But it, it could, if he would get his fingers on that, that would be a very interesting story to talk about. Yes. All right. Uh, we we want to fold in uh, Dean Vuletic, and Dean is the author of Postwar Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest. Thanks for joining us, Dean Vuletic. Good evening, uh, Jerome, Alexandra, and Jürgen. As we say in the Eurovision world, this is Vienna calling. <laughs> yes, that's right. This is Chicago calling. <laughs> um, you know, everyone seems to, you know, it's so funny that the origins of Eurovision is to thinking it would bring Europe together and it would be a nice thing with music. And But it was, uh, it's just like the Olympics. There's just a lot of nationalism involved, a lot of politics involved, and it's baked in. And, Dean, you argue that's part of the fun. The politics is part of the fun, but I have to um, emphasize that Eurovision wasn't created to exactly bring European to, uh, Europe together. It wasn't created for the purposes of Western European integration back in the 1950s. It was created to experiment with nascent television technology, so to broadcast simultaneously a live program across Western Europe. That was the original intention. All right. And it seems to have worked out okay. (laughs) Oh, it's been very successful. It's been staged every year since 1956 without fail and despite many political obstacles. Well, it was the fact that it was in Tel Aviv and Israel and the boycott movement is active uh, that really got most of the attention this time. Madonna did a little thing. The Icelandic group did a little thing. Um, What did you make of all that? Well, I mean, there was a lot of a lot of discussion about the politics of this year's contest, especially the impact of the boycott movement. But the boycott movement really had no impact because there were no countries that chose not to go to Eurovision this year because it was staged in Israel. As regards Madonna, I'm very critical of that performance. I think Eurovision should really be a European thing. It should be something that brings Europeans together, as it has traditionally. And Madonna's performance this year wasn't really that impressive. Uh, so I think that Eurovision really can do out, do without such big star performances. Jürgen and Alexandra are nodding their yes. heads vigorously in agreement. Absolutely, we are in agreement, Thank you. Yeah, and for I guess, sure. I guess nobody in our room, in our basement, as we yes. always call it, at the party was, yeah. uh, surpri- uh, was impressed. anywhere impressed. Yeah. yeah. No. 
And the thing you liked was the uh, four previous contestants who kind of swapped up and sang each other's songs. Yeah, this little interval act they had in between where uh, Conchita Wurst sang uh, Heroes, the song of the Swedish uh, winner from 2016. And I love her, and she did a great job, and Mans Semalov sang Fuego that we all liked from last, last year. year. So I thought that was a very nice little act in between. And it, it had the Eurovision thing in its heart, not the yes, yes. And uh, at the end, in. they sang uh, the 1974 winner, Israel won that year f- uh, with Hallelujah, and they sang that together. That was just wonderful. That was great. Um, I wanted to ask a question about um, Ukraine, which is the country that did drop out, Dean, uh, but for, for uh, odd reasons that are not uh, that didn't have anything to do with uh, Israel or the boycott. What happened with Ukraine this year? Well, the Ukrainians did choose an entry, Marov. She was meant to represent Ukraine in Eurovision this year. But the Ukrainian uh, national television broadcaster asked her to sign a contract saying that she would represent the politics of Ukraine, the official politics of Ukraine towards Crimea and Russia in her uh, international appearances. And she refused to do that. So in the end, Ukraine ended up with no entry in Eurovision this year. All right. So they... <laughs> they offed their own entry, which is kind of unusual. Now, I understand Italy's uh, entry uh, was an Egyptian-Italian and uh, had some controversy with uh, the leading political figures of the day in, in Italy. There was that as well when Alessandro Mahmoud won uh, Sanremo, Italy's uh, national song festival. And um, with that, he uh, became Italy's entrant in Eurovision. There were some negative responses from Italian right-wing politicians, including Matteo Salvini, criticizing uh, Mahmoud, as his stage name is, for being not Italian enough. But Alessandro Mahmoud was born in Italy. His mother is Italian. I mean, he speaks fluent Italian. He considers himself Italian. So really, he was very representative of Italy. And in the end, he came second so what more can you do for your country? And Alexandra, you really liked his song. I liked that song. It was a great performance. Uh, I liked uh, his lyrics and the stuff he was uh, singing about. No, no, he sang in Italian. He sang in Italian and a little bit of uh, Arabic here and there. But he, he was great. Absolutely. I liked it. Uh, and I think second place, you know, if he didn't. If he wasn't able to win, second place was totally deserved. Although this year was very close compared to last year. Netta had over 100 points spread to the second. And so between the first and the second this time was was only 27 points or something. So uh, how does that rank? Like in the history of Eurovision, there's been some really close ones. Is that the uh, yeah. this? Uh, I don't think that it was. I'm not so sure about uh, whether, <laughs> how close it you know was compared to others, but... Definitely much closer than Netta. Yeah, and that's I think that's why voting was very exciting this year. We were just all glued to <laughs> to the screen when they did the voting, so it was interesting. We're talking with Alexandra and Jurgen Reinhold from uh, Chicago. They're fans of Eurovision and have a party every year. And Dean Vuleda, she is a historian of contemporary Europe based at the University of Vienna, and he's the author of Postwar Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, well, Dean, what do you think Eurovision uh, does for Europe these days? What does it project to people? I think uh, the most important function of Eurovision is that it brings people together. 
This is one of Europe's greatest popular cultural phenomena. In recent years, it has been attracting some 200 million viewers. I traveled across Europe to do research for my book, and everywhere that I went, I found Eurovision to be a great conversation starter. People have an opinion about it wherever you go. So the strength in Eurovision really is that it is a common cultural reference across Europe. And um, even though the relationship between Eurovision and European integration has always been somewhat complicated, um, I really think its power is in the fact that it brings Europeans together and that all Europeans can relate to it. Well, is it um, broadcasting something that is a cosmopolitan vision of uh, of Europe that, that, that really presents, um, you know, different, uh, you know, kind of a cosmopolitan agenda. Is that true? Yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, Eurovision has been very important in fostering uh, common pan-European musical genres, especially the genre of Europe pop. ABBA was the epitome of that. Um, but on the other hand, it has also been very important in promoting uh, national and local cultures, in exposing Europeans to different uh, musical sounds from different parts of Europe. So um, on the one hand, it does promote uh, unity, but also diversity. And I think this is really the strength of uh, Eurovision as well. The fact that uh, it brings Europeans together, but also exposes them to diverse cultures. Is it working? <laughs> yes, I mean, we, we see a lot of uh, people in Europe doing really well who do not want diverse cultures and things. I would disagree. I think uh, that Eurovision is working. It has been held every year since 1956. You know, it is one of the world's longest running television programs, and it is extremely popular. And um, even though the current political situation in Europe might not reflect that, I think that um, Eurovision really has been uh, important in uh, promoting cultural diversity in Europe. And like I said before, uh, European integration and Eurovision have a complicated relationship. So while Europeans may be very happy to participate in this common cultural experience that is Eurovision, uh, when it comes to voting in the European parliamentary elections, which take place this week, yep. things might be somewhat different. Dean Vuletic is a historian of contemporary Europe based at the University of Vienna. He's the author of Post-War Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest. And Jürgen and Alexandra Reinhold are, uh, are folks who uh, have a party in their basement every <laughs> year and have been talking about it on the show the last couple of years. Thanks for joining us and talking about Eurovision, and I'll, I'll be sure to make the party next year. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to it. Thanks. Tomorrow on WBEZ, we're going to talk about the Indian elections and talk with Adam Roberts of The Economist, a journalist who was stationed in India for quite some time. And we'll hope you can join us tomorrow and talk about the elections from India. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ, and we go out with the music from the Netherlands that won the whole shebang. Thanks for joining us.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.